you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you for um, Jesus and his word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus on it now. I pray that your, your Holy Spirit would clear away any distractions that might enter our minds and make it hard for us to focus. And I pray that you would uh, take your word and apply to each one of us what we need to hear. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, my voice, my personality, uh, my words would get out of the way and that we would ultimately hear from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so like I said, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 5 to 11. And we're going to be flying high, hitting several of the main highlights. Um, But for those of you who haven't been with us all along in our journey through the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, we're up to Deuteronomy now. And in Deuteronomy, uh, it's, it's basically a series of several speeches that Moses, the leader of Israel, he gave the nation right before they entered into the promised land. So they're on the plains of Moab, right outside the promised land, and Moses is giving these speeches. And somebody, most likely after Moses, we don't really know who it is, took these speeches and put them together in the book that we have called Deuteronomy. They added an ending where Moses dies and stitched them together in a way that made sense, and we have Deuteronomy. But the vast majority of Deuteronomy is the words of Moses. Moses is getting the people ready to get into the land. Now, up to this point, Israel has had a terrible track record of not obeying the Lord. And this is Moses' final call for the people to listen to God before Moses, their leader, dies and their new leader, Joshua, takes them into the promised land. So what we're going to do, we're going to walk through Deuteronomy 5 to 11. We're going to look at four main things in these passages. First, we're going to look at the law, briefly, in Deuteronomy 5, and talk about how the law, basically what it is. It's the way for Israel to love God and love their neighbor. And it's the way for them to be righteous in God's sight. So the law is to be their righteousness and in the sight of God. Second, we're going to look at the call to love God from the heart. The call to love God from the heart. And then, so, so the law is not supposed to be obeyed just out of duty. Just do it. But no, it's supposed to actually come from their heart, a desire to love God by obeying his word. Then the third thing we're going to talk about is four threats that Deuteronomy, well, three threats, actually, that we're going to hone in on. Three threats to loving God that Deuteronomy unpacks. Three threats to loving God and obeying him in chapter 7 to 9. And then we're going to spend um, the last little bit looking, the fourth thing is at the blessings that God promises for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And in our conclusion, we're going to turn to Jesus. And we're going to see how Jesus is God's perfect son, his blessed and obedient son, who perfectly obeys God's law, who fulfills the righteous requirements of the law perfectly, like no human before him ever had, and how Jesus is now working that same righteousness that he fulfilled, he's working it in us, his people who trust him by his Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at how he bore the curse of the law for us on the cross, the curse of breaking the law that we deserved to bear he takes that for us so that's where we'll end today so first we're gonna look at the way to love god the way to love god is to keep the law of righteousness according to deuteronomy 
the law as righteousness. Look at Deuteronomy 6. So maybe you might have to turn a page over from chapter 5, 6, verses 24 to 25. And the Lord commanded us to do all of these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Notice that word in verse 25, it. It will be righteousness for us. What is the word it referring to? It's God's law. God's law. His rules that he impacts. It will be righteousness for Israel. Now, the word righteousness is probably a word we've heard before. Our culture even uses it. You know, it's like, righteous, man, or whatever. You know, I've heard it before um, being thrown around. But do we really know what this word means, righteousness? I, I think a really good definition of righteousness is that it's, it's rightly upholding what is right and rightly rejecting what is wrong. Righteousness is rightly upholding the right and rightly rejecting the wrong, or loving good and hating evil. That's another way to say it. Now, of course, we have to have a standard for righteousness, and as Christians, we believe the standard comes from God. The standard for rightly upholding the right, what is right, what is wrong, we believe that we're not, culture doesn't define that. Families don't define that. Ultimately, the father of all the earth, the king of all the earth, defines it. So, righteousness is found in the law. It will be your righteousness, Israel. God will look at you and he'll say, you are perfect in my sight if, and only if you are careful to do everything in the law, just as God commanded. Notice verse 24. The reason that you want to be righteous, why would you want to be righteous? What's, what's the point? It's for our good. For, our, for your good always, that God might preserve us alive. So God, in summary, is telling the people of Israel... If you keep my rules perfectly, the rules you see in Deuteronomy 5 and throughout the rest of Deuteronomy and the Torah, if you keep my rules perfectly, then you will be righteous in my sight. You'll have a perfectly righteous status. I'll look at you and say, you are always rightly upholding what is right, and you're always rejecting what is wrong, and you will be fit to live in my presence and enjoy my presence in the promised land of rest that we're going to. You're going to live and not die. You'll experience good and not evil. God's commands here, ultimately, they are for their good, always, not just for a few minutes. I think every parent in this room, every parent, every good parent, um, wants, has a vision of what is good for their kids, right? In their mind's eye, they said, this would be good for my child. Many parents might say something, I've heard this before, I don't really care what my kid does when they grow up as long as they're happy. And that might sound good on the surface, you know, it's okay, I just want, I, I want you to be happy. As long, are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy. Okay, then you can go ahead and wreck your life, you know. 
this, it, it sounds good on one level. I want you to be happy. But divorce from any standard, is this really true? Would you be glad if your child was delightfully happy and hurting others? Probably not. We, we want our children to be find, ha- find happiness, to f- but we want them to find happiness in doing things that we, as their parents, deem are good and worthy things. Now, what a Christian parent would deem as a good and worthy thing might differ from somebody who's not a believer at certain points, but the basic idea remains the same. Parents want good things for their children. They want parents to find kids to their kids to find joy and happiness in being righteous in doing right and rejecting the wrong god designed parenting to be like this because god is the perfect parent in the bible god is the father of his son israel the children of israel are corporately called god's son and god wants his son israel to find life and happiness and goodness in loving him and in living rightly before him all their days. And he wants the same for you and I. And he doesn't leave Israel in the dark about what is good for them. He spells it out in the law. So Deuteronomy 5, we get the Ten Commandments. We saw them in Exodus 20, and we get them again in Deuteronomy 5. Another rehashing of them for the new generation a reminder as they're about to go into the land remember these these words these are the words of life keep them and you will live ultimately what these words are is is 10 ways these 10 words from the mountain of sinai the 10 commandments they're 10 ways to love god and love neighbor 10 ways to love god and love neighbor and the rest of the law that brian will be summarizing Matt, a big overview next week. The rest of the law really unpacks, to some extent, those ten laws with lots of case laws of what, what loving God and what loving neighbor looks like in everyday life in Israel. And so love God, love the image of God. That's the summary of the law. And that's for Israel's good, always, that God gives it to them. And now, um, look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6, where we see really what the summary of the law is. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Jesus says all the law and the prophets hang on that commandment love god with all your heart with all your soul with all your might and if you love god with all your might then you'll love the image of god as well people made in his image your neighbor love god love the image of god that's the summary of the law found in deuteronomy 6 and now let's move to the second main thing to see in deuteronomy so we've seen the law of love We're not going to go into the Ten Commandments. I assume most of you are familiar with them. Ten ways to love God, love neighbor. And they're supposed to be on the hearts of the people. 
And we're going to move to the second thing now. The call to love God is a call to love God from the heart. They're supposed to be on the hearts of the people. God doesn't want the people to just obey him with their lips only, while their hearts are far from him. He actually says this in Isaiah chapter 29. The prophet is, is crying out to the people. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's like singing a song of worship to Jesus with your mouth and thinking about something completely different in your mind, in your heart. I know that I'm able to do that because I've done that. Have you ever been singing and completely check out and you're still singing, but you're thinking about something completely different? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Our hearts are fickle things. They can constantly drift. And God really doesn't care, ultimately, what we say about our relationship with him. He cares about our hearts. He sees our hearts. He sees our motives for going to church. He sees everything, and he knows that if our hearts are far from him, then our, whatever we say with our lips, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We can't pull the wool over his eyes. We might be able to fool ourselves, but we can't fool Jesus, ultimately. He calls us to love him, heart, soul, mind, with our everything here in Deuteronomy. It's an all-consuming command. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I preached a whole sermon on this command from Deuteronomy 6 that we just read about loving the Lord your God. Love God. What is love? The command to love God presumes that you know what loving God means. And last week, I think it was two weeks ago, we talked about loving God, and we said that love is a powerful attraction to something that delights us. A powerful attraction to something that delights us. And that we were, and last week we saw, or two weeks ago, we saw we, we were created to find our greatest joy and delight in knowing God and in being in a relationship with God and in hearing God and speaking with God and one day dwelling in God's presence forever. That's what humans were made for. We were made to spend eternity with God. And the best way to love yourself and to take care of yourself is and to satisfy your heart's desires, both now and forever, is to love God faithfully. That's also the best way to love our neighbors. There's nothing more loving than seeking to help our neighbors, our friends, our kids, even our enemies experience the love of God and the power of his beauty that we're attracted to. We want to, oh, taste and see, we said before, that the Lord is good. True love for neighbor wants others to taste the goodness of the Lord. Oh, taste and see that he's good. Taste his forgiveness. Taste his love. And to show it in our own love for them and in our own forgiveness and in the way we treat people. So that ultimately is what it means to love God with all our hearts. This powerful attraction to wanting want to satisfy our hearts with him and him alone to obey his words to trust him as all sufficient that he is enough 
for us. So to sum up what we've seen so far, we've seen that Deuteronomy, it calls Israel to love God by keeping his laws from their hearts. And if they do that, they're going to be righteous in God's sight. And they'll find life in the land. Now, let's think about that for a minute from a whole Bible perspective. Think about Adam back in the Garden of Eden. Okay, Adam was supposed to keep God's law in the garden. He only had one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he would find life. Disobey, and he would find death. And Adam, he failed to obey God's words, and he was ultimately exiled, kicked out of the garden. In a similar way, fast forward, Jesus is coming again to make all things new. Only righteous humans will be able to live forever in the new creation that God is making. Period. Eden restored is for only the righteous. No exceptions. One evil thought. If I were to enter into the new creation someday and have one greedy thought, just one, that would begin to bear fruit and destroy the new creation. Period. To enter the new creation, we must be perfect, or we will get Genesis 3 and the fall and the wreckage of sin and death all over again. So, do we want to find life forever in God's presence after we die? Or do we want to spend eternity outside the new creation in a place the Bible calls hell, lest we enter in and destroy it with one evil thought even? We've got to be righteous. If we want to enter in, we have to rightly uphold the right from the heart perfectly every time. And so the question that we've got to ask the Bible and we're presented with in Deuteronomy, we'll get to that in a minute, is how can I do that? If Israel wasn't able to, how can I? We'll get to the answer at the end, but just know that the presence of God will consume all evil. And only those who are perfectly righteous will be able to find life before him. For Israel, this is the same set of guidelines. Only those who are perfectly righteous, who keep God's law and love him with all their hearts by keeping his word, by trusting him perfectly, by never disobeying, only those people are able to find lasting life and rest in the promised land. The land, of course, being a picture of the new creation of God setting things right again with the world. That's real simple, right? Obey God perfectly, and he'll say you're righteous. Right? He says in Deuteronomy 6.25, these words will be righteousness for you if you do them for your good always. It might seem sim simple, but there were some serious threats that Israel would face when they entered the land of promise. Threats to their love for God. Let alone their own hearts, which we'll get to in a minute. But there were some external threats as well. And we'll, we still face these same threats today. And that's what Deuteronomy chapters 7 to 9 really hone in on. So the first, we're going to look now at three threats to loving God. The first threat to wholehearted love for the Lord and perfect obedience to his word, it shows up in Deuteronomy 7. So in Deuteronomy 7, 
we learn that when Israel enters the land of Canaan, they must not make peace with the nations living there. In total, there's seven nations living in the land of Canaan. Evil nations, unspeakably evil. We'll see that mentioned again in Deuteronomy 9. And God has called Israel to destroy these nations completely. Now, before we go on, I just want to pause and point out two things, okay? It's okay to wrestle with these stories, but know this. This isn't a case of the good guys versus the bad guys here, all right? No, it's a case of God versus evil in these stories. Whether the evil be found in Israel or in the nations that they consider their enemies. So that's the first thing. This isn't God picking sides. This is God against evil. And God judges his people and he judges the people in the land. He shows no partiality. Second, this doesn't mean that there's no hope for the nations living inside the land. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute, and she ends up getting spared in the book of Joshua with her whole family. Why? Because she turns to the Lord and fears him. In the very next chapter of Joshua, though, there's a story that we see a man named Achan who is destroyed, an Israelite man, he's destroyed because of his own rebellion against the Lord. So again, this is God versus evil in humanity, just like the flood was. And so, as the Israelites enter the land, they are to make no covenants with these pagan nations. And, in verse four, he, or 3, he says they're not to intermarry with them either. Why? Verse 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So God knows that becoming one flesh, entering into a one flesh covenant union with someone who isn't sold out to the Lord, can lead, in the end, our hearts astray from the Lord. But there's a broader principle here that I want to draw out for us today. And the broader principle is that the worship styles and the patterns of this world they pose a threat to the worship of the one true God. Our memory verse for the month is from 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. I'll read it for us. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So all around you and I, just like ancient Israel going into the land, there's worldliness. The, the lustful desires of human flesh, cravings for sinful things in every realm of existence. The world laughs at what makes our Heavenly Father weep. The world smirks at things like sexual immorality. But God does not. He is the faithful God, keeping covenant forever. The world encourages materialism, this constant desire to pile up possessions higher and higher until our garages are overfilled and we need more. We look around and everybody's doing the same and so we get lulled into thinking it's okay. And we could go on and on, but my point is the world, it poses a deadly threat to the Christian life, just like it did for ancient Israel. Worldliness is all around us. The media champions the ideologies of the world. The movies we consume, they're all trying to shape our hearts with the messages and the loves of the world. The commercials that we see 
on TV, passively watching. They're intended to awake in us desires for things of the world. They're getting better, too. I've been looking at some hiking pants, right, on Amazon, and all of a sudden all the ads are like, these will fulfill your deepest desires, okay? The world knows how to market to us desires. They're intended to awaken in us desires for things we don't have. Coveting is always a threat. In our world, we don't worship Baal like the Canaanites that the Israelites faced, but we worship the same exact things that Baal promised to all his followers. Money, sex, power, security, freedom, and on and on. And we just skip Baal today and go right after the things we want themselves. So let's be mindful of this, okay? Our hearts, just like the hearts of Israel, they're being shaped all the time. Who we hang out with matters. It shapes us over time, especially when we hang out alone with people who are following the ways of the world. We're all in danger of the threat of worldliness to our love for God. And I'm not saying we should leave the world because of this. I'm going to stay away from you because you're dirty. You contaminate me. No, that wasn't the approach of Jesus. No, we should have friends who don't know the Lord. But the question is, will we join them in their way of life gradually over time? Learning to love the things that they love that are not what God approves? Or will we love them like God does? God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his own son. And so when we reach out to the world, let's give the world the greatest gift that we can. Jesus. Jesus in our words. Jesus in our actions. How? We serve people like Jesus. We serve humbly like Jesus. We love like Jesus. We tell people who don't know Jesus about him. We pray for our friends that we love so deeply that don't know the Lord. You can't leave the world until God calls you home. You know, why can't I just, when I become a Christian, why doesn't Jesus just take me so I can escape all these worldly threats? He wants us to love the world. He's got a mission for us. He had a mission for Israel as well. Deuteronomy 4, we looked at last week, and he says these commands will be your wisdom in the sight of the people. So as you love God and love neighbor in the land, the people will say, wow, that's what that life looks like? We want in on that. They'll do what Rahab did. Tragically, Israel was just like the nations, on steroids, even more so. They exceeded the immorality of the nations, and they did not present the picture of wisdom because something was wrong with their hearts. They fell to these threats. They intermarried with the nations because they had a heart problem, the same heart problem that we struggle with as well and that Jesus overcomes, and we'll talk about that again in a minute. But there's a second threat to love for God, and the second threat we see is found in Deuteronomy 7 as well as Deuteronomy 9. It's the thought that you and I deserve the love of God, that we're more righteous than other people. Chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. 
So God didn't love Israel because of anything in Israel as a nation. There was nothing in Israel that made God love them. He didn't say, wow, what a big nation. So much potential. I could really work with that. No. He picked one man, Abraham, with a body that couldn't even produce children and a heart that was far from steady in his faith. And he made a whole nation out of him, more vast and numerous than any of the peoples. So it wasn't because of anything in Israel. They were a mess, and yet God set his love on them. It's the same with you and I. God didn't look at us and say, I love you because you're more spiritually inclined than your neighbor or than your siblings who aren't Christians. No, he saved you and I in a way that's t that totally removes any grounds for boasting in ourselves whatsoever. By grace, that's free love. We're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. So it's the same way with Israel. God picks Israel by grace, and we see that theme come up again in Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 9, you can flip to the same theme there, verses 4 to 6. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust the nations out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas, so rather, he says, it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness. It's not because you're the good guys and they're the bad guys. That's not what's going on. Because, but because of the wickedness of these nations, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore, swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So once again, God doesn't choose to drive the nations out because Israel is better. They were, more, they were unrighteous. They were sinful. God chose them because he set his love on their forefathers and made great promises to them to save the world through one day through a son who would be faithful and obedient, Jesus, the child of Abraham. So God, in the same way, he did not choose you and I to populate his new creation someday because we had a lot going for us, a lot of potential. No, we're, we're stubborn as well. Okay? But God is in the business of changing stubborn hearts from the inside out. So Christians, we do not think that we're better than other people. We do not think that we merit the love that God has shown us. Now the reason that thinking we deserve God's love is a threat to loving God for us and for Israel is because it actually changes the nature of our relationship with God at its core. All right, so listen to this carefully. If I base God's love for me, if I base God's love for me on my love for God, he loves me because I love him this much, then that makes me in the driver's seat of our relationship, okay? God, I loved you this much, and so I deserve for you to love me this much. I'm a good person, God, so my life should be good in the way that I define it. And if it's not, well, you and I might as well stop hanging out for a little while anyway. We're on, not on speaking terms. Or think of it this way. We look at people that 
have things that we want and we think, God, I'm more righteous than them. I'm better than them. How come they have the stuff that I want? We could go on and on, but the reality is sin hardwires us to think this way. We're hardwired to think that people should only get what they deserve. And so when we get what we think we deserve, we, we're okay with that. We, we earned that. We, we were good, we got good, and we can even become prideful. When we don't get what we think we deserve from God, we grow bitter. We grow resentful. We may even walk away from the faith. When we get something we think we don't deserve, so when we get something good from God, like blessings, that we think, man, I really don't deserve this, we start to feel guilty. Like, I shouldn't be finding joy in this because I don't deserve it, and I got it, and maybe the other people that didn't get it should, should have gotten it. Maybe God made a mistake. We feel like we couldn't accept the love of God unless we've earned it. Or when others get something we feel like they don't deserve, we're envious of them. Even angry, not happy and thankful. So again, all these threats come from thinking God loves us because we deserve it, because we're worthy. They're threats to loving God. It changed the dynamics of our relationship with him if we think that he loves us because of our love for him. But God doesn't love Israel or us because of what we've done. He sets his love on Israel. It's not deserved. It's not earned. And there's nothing that's beyond the scope then of what he can call his people to do, what he can expect of them. We deserved help for his rebellion, for our rebellion, and so did Israel. And so anything that we receive from God that's not hell, it's grace. Unmerited, unearned grace. Now there's one final threat to loving God that I want to mention here. It's found in chapter 8, and it's the threat of plenty. Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 to 14. In verse 10, God tells Israel how they are to live in the land he's giving them. He says, you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. And then he gives this warning. So that's what you should do. Eat, be satisfied in the land. This is great, and bless the Lord. Instead, and he says, take, careful, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commands and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. So here we see that there's a third deadly danger to our hearts drifting away from love for God and forgetting him. Think about your prayer life. When do you cry out to the Lord most urgently in prayer? I was talking to Corey about this earlier, you know, is, uh, yesterday. When do, we cry, when do we pray the most? Is it when things are going really well or when things are falling apart all around us? It's when we're drowning that we call for help, right? And God, 
warns Israel about this. He says, you're going to forget the Lord when your hands are filled with his blessings. When we fill, our hands are filled with the blessings of God, our hearts start to drift from finding security in the money he's given us, in the money in the bank, and not as much in him and his promises. Having plenty is not wrong in and of itself, but we must hear the words of the Lord here. Beware lest your heart forgets the Lord. Instead, do what verse 10 says. Bless the Lord constantly. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Do not forget that you have everything you have from him is an undeserved gift at the end of the day. Don't forget to love him when things are going well. And when things fall apart in your hands, he's calling. He's using those moments to redirect our hearts to him. Now we come to the fourth and final point of the message before we conclude looking to Jesus. The blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. In Deuteronomy, obedience brings the blessing of life. So if you're righteous and you love God perfectly and you avoid all the threats that we talked about, you live. If you disobey, you die. Now we need a little bit of clarification here. In the last point, point three, we saw that God's love for Israel is unconditional. He loved them despite their sin. He redeemed them from slavery from Egypt despite their lack of love for him. It wasn't like God listened to them in Egypt because they were loving him so well. No, they don't deserve any of the goodness that he gave them. They don't deserve the promised land. But now, here's the question. Is Deuteronomy and Moses being inconsistent? By saying, you didn't earn any of God's love up to this point, but now that you're in the land, keep his law, you better earn it, or you'll get kicked out. Do they have to deserve the gift of life by their obedience? I think the answer is no. First, God's love for them in rescuing them from Egypt and bringing them to the promised land, it doesn't mean that they're going to heaven no matter what. It's an undeserved love. So God, it's not inconsistent in Deuteronomy here. It's not saying God gave you salvation for your souls by taking you out of Egypt. And now that you're in the land, you've got to save yourselves eternally. No, this is physical salvation that God is giving them. And an external love. He's showing them his love by bringing their bodies out of slavery in Egypt. Bringing them to the promised land doesn't mean they're all going to heaven now. Yes, it's undeserved love. It brings them to a crossroads, though. A crossroads where they're shown two paths. The same two paths that Adam was shown in the Garden of Eden. Obey God and find life in the land. For Adam, it's obey and find life in the garden. Or disobey and you find death. If you break the words that gave you life you get death for Adam, for Israel for us all all of God's redeeming work for Israel up to this point was undeserved he could have just destroyed them but no, he's patiently bringing them to the point where we're reading today, the point where they need to choose, Deuteronomy ends with Moses saying, now choose life 
See, I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Here's your options. Choose life. But remember the threats to Israel choosing life? They end up falling to the threats. They do not end up obeying God. They're at the crossroads, just like Adam. Are they going to get kicked out of the land just like Adam was expelled from the garden? They will. And they will experience curse and not blessing because something is wrong with Israel. It's wrong with their hearts. They experienced all the blessings of the Lord's goodness to them. But their hearts remained unchanged. Their hearts still don't trust God. And so they lack the righteousness to live life in the presence of God in the land. And though their sacrificial system, sacrificing sheep and goats, actually provides a temporary way for their sins, for all their law-breaking to be paid for and covered, for those who had the faith to make the sacrifices, and many did not, Israel still needed God to fix their heart problem. And you and I need the same thing. Obeying God perfectly might sound simple on paper, but apart from the Spirit of God working in our hearts, it is impossible to put a love for God into our own souls. All of the laws that God gave to Israel to help them know how to love them, love him and be righteous so that they could stay in the land, all of these laws, they required a love for God from the heart and a trust in the Lord that the people themselves could not put into their hearts. Their hearts could not change themselves. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16 Moses actually gets to the heart of the problem. He says, circumcise your own hearts, Israel. In other words, cut away the, the, the flesh that's getting in the way of God's work in your heart. Circumcise your own hearts. Ultimately, we find out through the rest of the story, they can't do it. And so Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 gives us the solution. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, we talked about this last week, God promises that he will circumcise the people's hearts. He will cut out the sin, the, the flesh, the, the brokenness in there. He will change their hearts so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you will live. So God is going to fix the problem that the law could not. You could tell people, change your heart, change your heart, change your heart, all you want and you cannot do it people cannot change their hearts to love god they might be able to clean up their life a little bit stay away from certain grossly immoral sins go to church consistently 365 days of the year but they cannot awaken we cannot awaken love for god in our hearts because of our sin and our brokenness. But God promised in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he's going to fix the problem with Israel. And so, as we draw to a conclusion, we're going to start to move towards how. How he does it. The answer is Jesus and the spirit he gives, who makes us righteous in God's sight. 
and ultimately who delivers us from the threats to loving God and who qualifies us to stand before God one day in this new creation, holy and blameless in his sight, in love. Christ is the obedient son of God who was cursed for us to provide for us righteousness. So again, the law is clear. Leviticus 18.5, the one who does them shall live by them. Yet Israel didn't keep the law. They didn't have hearts that could. Israel was an unfaithful son of God by the end of the day. And so are you and I apart from God's grace. There's something wrong with our hearts. We need someone to be perfect for us because we can't do the law perfectly. And we need someone to bear the curse of the law for the curse of lawbreaking for us. For the curses are truly terrifying. Cut off from life forever. We need someone to bear that curse. And we need someone to change our hearts. Because we can't actually love and obey God from the heart on our own. And so God sent forth his son, his one and only son, Jesus, to be born as a man and to live a perfectly obedient and righteous life for us. At his baptism in Luke's gospel, chapter 3, the, the Holy Spirit, he comes down on the man, Jesus. And the Father's voice comes down from heaven, proclaiming, this is my son, my beloved son. And then Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit and led by that very spirit, he goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days, just like Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. And because of the Holy Spirit in him, Jesus Christ, he doesn't fail. Satan throws all of hell against him. Jesus quotes the Bible. Actually, he quotes Deuteronomy 8, where we were. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's word is my life, says Jesus, in the midst of Satan's temptations. He doesn't cave. He doesn't buckle. He lives the life that we could never live. He kept the law that Israel always failed to keep. He didn't fall to the threats. By his perfect obedience, Jesus... He inherited the promised land of rest that God promised would belong to a righteous Israel. Israel, you want the land? Be righteous. Jesus was perfectly righteous, and he didn't just get the promised land. He got the throne of the new creation by his resurrection. That was God's saying. In raising Jesus, God says, he's the perfect one. He was not guilty. He did not fail. He's vindicated before the eyes of the world by his resurrection. And he inherits all things, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. All things were made by him and for him. He's before all things. And in him they all hold together now. He's going to make all things new again. He's going to reconcile to himself all things. Jesus is the king. He's the perfectly righteous son. And he wins the promised land. And he doesn't just rule over this creation like the first Adam was supposed to. No, he rules the universe by the word of his power. And his resurrection from the dead, again, it proves he wasn't just another crazy Middle Eastern revolutionary who got killed for messing with the wrong team. He really was the faithful son of God. And Jesus, he didn't just live the perfect life that we could never live. No, he took the covenant curses that we deserved and Israel deserved on himself when he died on the cross. 
Jesus died outside of God's city, Jerusalem. He suffered for the sins of his people and for our sins. He took the penalty of death and separation, being cut off from life itself, so that we might find life in him if we trust in his sacrifice. And finally, Jesus offers the same righteousness that he lived. He offers it to you and I. So when you trust Jesus, three things happen. First, Jesus takes the curse of your separation that you deserve, separation from God for your sin, and he takes it on himself. Second, Jesus gives you his righteous status before God. If you receive him by faith, you become so connected to him in God's sight that just like his death counts for you, so his obedient life counts for you in your place, covering over all your past failures, your present failures, and your future failures to love God perfectly. Jesus' righteousness stands for you totally perfect, covering it all. And then the third thing that happens, something that we talked more about last week, but I'll just mention it briefly here again. If you trust Jesus, his Holy Spirit is put into you by God. That circumcision of the heart that we mentioned in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that transformation that only God can do, the prophets like Ezekiel chapter 36, they said it comes by the Spirit. Jesus called it being born again in John 3 and said it happened by the Spirit. Getting that new heart happens by the Spirit. So if you trust Jesus, God puts his Spirit in you and your heart gets changed. Just like the Spirit empowered Jesus to go into the wilderness and beat temptation, so the Holy Spirit of Jesus lives in every true Christian and empowers us to live for him, changes us from the inside out so that we start to want to love God. And the Spirit empowers us to live a life of love for God and for neighbor till the day that we are and we are we die and we're resurrected, or Jesus returns and we get our new bodies and we enter into the new creation rest that he is ruling over even right now. So if you trust Jesus, he gives you his spirit. And if we have the spirit, then by the spirit of God, we actually have a righteousness being worked in us that fulfills the law. Now, we do not do the law perfectly yet. That's why we need Jesus' perfect righteousness standing over us, covering us like a, a warm coat on a winter day. Jesus' righteousness covers us in God's sight. But all the while, he is in us by his Spirit, writing true love for God on our hearts. Love, in the words of Paul, love and Romans 13, verse 8, love fulfills the law. You want to fulfill the law? These commands, Deuteronomy 6, 25, these commands will be righteousness for you if you do them. And how do we, as Christians, do them? It looks a little bit different through Jesus now that he's come, but the, the heart of them is the same. Love God, love neighbor by the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the Spirit who has put that love in our hearts. So again, Jesus, the obedient son, he is the one who wins for us all the promises of life 
and the new creation and who deals with everything that would keep us out. And I want to close now with Romans 8. Romans 8, chapter 1 to 4 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So remember, what can't this law do? What can't the law of righteousness do? It can't change hearts. So how did God do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus' flesh. Jesus took our curse. Here's the purpose in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the fear to the spirit we keep the law the righteousness righteous requirement of the law through faith by the power of the spirit and one day when jesus comes again and our flesh is dealt with forever and we get our new resurrected bodies where we will not sin anymore we will stand in the new creation holy and blameless before him in love. And my prayer today is that any of you who do not know Jesus Christ, the obedient, faithful son, would look to him and find life and find forgiveness and find a righteousness that covers you in God's presence and then works within you what is pleasing in his sight. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we covered a lot of ground. It's hard to know exactly how to summarize all we see in Deuteronomy 5 to 11, but I pray that, Lord, you would apply the highlights to our hearts and that Jesus would be the highlight, the obedient son. May we look to him and live. May he continue to work in our hearts that which is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.